Um, welcome to tonight's session of our monthly public RPP Religions in the Practice of Peace Colloquium. I'm Liz Rakaya, Lee Hood Research Associate for RPP, and I want to convey greetings to you all from Dean Hempton. Unfortunately, he couldn't be here in person today, um, but he's here in spirit, and he'll also be watching later on video, as will others. Um, so we'd like to express our thanks to you, to our speakers, um, Dr. Joseph Henrik, Dr. Omar Sultan Haq, and our moderator, Jeff Sewell. Um, we're thrilled to have you with us. And we'd also like to express our gratitude to the Reverend Karen Vickers Budney and Mr. Albert J. Budney Jr. for their generous support of RPP and to our RPP team for their work, as always, to make everything happen. So the topic of tonight's session is religion and the sphere of care and cooperation, social science research on religious prosociality. A central insight that led to Dean Hempton's founding the initiative is the vital role that religious communities have played over the millennia in cultures around the world in fostering more harmonious and cooperative human relationships and the urgent need for us today to better understand this role, even if we continue to seek greater insight into the way in which religion is utilized to incite violence. So one field of study of very great theoretical and practical relevance for us is the growing field of social science research on the pro-social, that's as opposed to antisocial, dimensions of religion. And we're very fortunate to have scholars right here at Harvard University who have been in the forefront of this field. And so as part of our ongoing efforts to foster cross-disciplinary conversation in RPP, we're delighted to have these leading experts with us to help us delve into this topic tonight. Leading us in our discussion tonight will be Jeff Sewell, Harvard Divinity School's inaugural lecturer on the practice of peace. You probably know Jeff and have seen him at all of our events. Jeff has been a core contributor to RPP since the early days of the initiative, co-facilitating RPP's two cross-disciplinary courses, the RPP Colloquium course, of which this series is a part, and RPP's course on transformative leadership and spiritual development. We're enormously grateful for Jeff's many contributions to RPP, including his highlighting for us the important research that we'll be exploring here tonight. Alongside his work with RPP, Jeff is a partner with the international law firm Holland and & Knight and co-chair of the Peace Appeal Foundation, an international NGO that helps local stakeholders launch and sustain broad-scale peace and national dialogue processes to end or avoid war. The Peace Appeal Foundation was founded with a mandate from five Nobel Peace Laureates, including Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, and F.W. de Klerk. Much of Jeff's scholarship is focused on religion and peace building, including the role of identity dynamics in violent conflict involving religious groups and approaches to transformation of conflicts with a religious dimension. His 1999 article, Ours is the Way of God, Religion, Identity, and Intergroup Conflict, published in the Journal of Peace Research, was among the first to combine work in the social sciences and religious studies to offer an explanation of why religion and conflict sometimes become entangled. 
two forthcoming chapters in the Negotiator's Desk Reference, a collaboration among leading conflict resolution scholars and practitioners, discuss recent social scientific work on religious prosociality, the topic of tonight's event, and how it can contribute to peace building. With social psychologist Mariska Kapmeyer, Jeff is engaged in a long-term research program examining religion's role in building trust across group lines. Their approach emphasizes positive personal and relational qualities, such as integrity and compassion, rather than conceiving of trust as compliance behavior, as something dependent primarily on a sense of being monitored. Jeff also has written about post-conflict transitional justice mechanisms, like truth commissions, reconciliation in the aftermath of conflict, the interplay between conflict resolution work and human rights advocacy, and possibilities for consensual resolution of social disputes involving deeply held moral values, like the controversies over abortion and school prayer. Jeff's current practice commitments include ongoing co-facilitation of a process that brings together senior Jewish and Muslim religious leaders in Israel and Palestine to address the religious dimensions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He also has helped support peace and national dialogue processes in Lebanon, Myanmar, Nepal, and elsewhere. Jeff earned an MTS at Harvard Divinity School here and later earned an LLM in international law at Harvard Law School, where he also taught negotiation and conflict resolution courses for several years, offering Harvard's first course on complex multi-party negotiations. During that time, he also was a senior associate of the Program on International Conflict Analysis and Resolution at Harvard's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. A Zen practitioner, Jeff is a student of the Trappist monk and Zen teacher, Father Ken, Kevin Hunt, Father Kevin Hunt Sensei. Jeff, would you like to take over? Thank you. Yeah. Welcome. So uh, there's no such, uh, there's nothing so practical as a good theory, uh, Kurt. Levine, one of the founders of social psychology, famously wrote. Um, and I think there have been too many bad theories in the social sciences and in adjunct disciplines like international relations and public policy studies and law about the relationships among religion, uh, cooperation, and conflict. And because these academic disciplines have such an outsized influence on policymakers, diplomats, and many types of practitioners in the international arena. Uh, bad theories about religion often make for bad policy and practice in response to challenges in which religion is somehow involved. Uh, during much of the 20th century, as we know, Many elites in the weird world, the Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic regions of the world, uh, a, a term I suspect you'll hear others use tonight, um, assumed that religion was declining in influence, uh, would continue to do so, and might one day disappear altogether. Events like the Iranian hostage crisis, the war in the former Yugoslavia, 
in the Rwandan genocide late in uh, the last century began to disrupt the assumption of one major uh, variant of the liberal, secular, uh, democratic ideal, that assumption that religion was in decline. So new theories about the role of religion and global affairs began to emerge in response to these jarring events, uh, as did in an unending stream, really, of data uh, confirming that religion is not, in fact, in decline globally, over the whole globe. These and some other events with which religion has been associated in, in recent memory are incredibly tragic, and, uh, and they seemingly provide fodder for the many theorists who, uh, who, who sort of have a stance against religion. Um, and I think that it's fair to say that too many of the, the theories that we've seen about religion in the current era um, are often more or less repackagings of a priori assumptions about religion's role in, in the world. Uh, perhaps most notably, the late Samuel Huntington, a distinguished professor of political science here at Harvard, advanced in his Clash of Civilizations uh, article in 1993, uh, in Foreign Affairs, in a book later in 1996, uh, that, that religion was one of uh, the primary markers of civilizations in the contemporary era. And there were extreme, extreme tensions between these religions or these civilizations marked by uh, religion and, uh, and the Western liberal, democratic, secular ideal. Um, so religion is really the primary defining characteristic of some civilizations in Huntington's global topology. Um, and he tended to view religions generally as relatively static, monolithic, and at best in severe tension with the Western liberal order. Um, I think it's fair to say that many theoretical perspectives and practical programs since uh, over the last couple decades can be traced back at least faintly uh, to Huntington's influential and also contentious and, and sometimes criticized view of religion's influence in world affairs along these lines. Um, and some of these have been you know, fairly insidious perspectives. Uh, some of the writings of the so-called new atheists, for instance, and perhaps it would be, it, it, we could say, perhaps too early to tell, even some of the developing policies of the new administration in the US. Um, also during the mid-90s, we began to see some scholars focus attention on the role religious actors sometimes play in promoting peace. In the academic field that is generally referred to today as religious peace building emerged alongside this renewed focus on religion in the social sciences. In existing members of the HDS faculty, in fact, people like Harvey Cox and David Little, uh, who retired from here a few years ago, were among the field's earliest contributors. 
Um, in general, contributors to the religious peacebuilding field then and since have been trained primarily in religious studies and theology. And the modes of investigation and analysis they employ tend to be more qualitative than much of the work done in the social sciences. Now, the, the best of that work in religious peacebuilding then and since has not been naive or defensive about religion's sometimes unfortunate entanglements with conflict. Um, but it also has been, I think it's fair to say, uh, focused relatively more on the role that religion has long had in promoting cooperation and the active roles religious actors often play in helping prevent or end violent conflict. Um, this work on religious peace building has had some meaningful impact on policy and practice, I think, but the impact to date uh, has been relatively modest in my view. Uh, one reason uh, for this, I think, is that policymakers, diplomats, and most conflict resolution practitioners are mostly trained within and influenced by the social, scientists, uh, the social sciences, as I noted earlier. Um, and even though we've seen some renewed focus in the social sciences generally, there's probably too little attention on religion still. Tonight's speakers are very different. Uh, they are among a relatively small group of social scientists who are contributing to a growing body of research on the phenomenon that they have termed religious prosociality. And this research on religious prosociality began and in my estimation has largely proceeded in the way all good scientific work is done. Um, with genuine curiosity about what's going on uh, and real openness to surprise, uh, e even when, and this is true of most contributors to the domain I think, um, many of them are not themselves religious. Uh, research in this domain generally, it seems to me, has steered clear of the polemics that too often attends other discourse about religion. So in general, this research supports uh, the notion that religion is pro-social, meaning that it has played an important role in the growth and maintenance of groups at scale. Uh, the work that you're going to be introduced to tonight is extraordinarily interdisciplinary, and that's one of its strengths. Uh, tonight we're going to hear from an anthropologist uh, teaching within an evolutionary biology department whose research methods are broad and include uh, those uh, used in experimental psychology. And we're also going to hear from a medical doctor uh, trained in psych psychiatry who holds a PhD in social sciences and religion and has done postdoctoral fellowships in psychology and anthropology. Other leading researchers in this emerging field uh, include the anthropologist Scott Atron, the social psychologist Ger uh, Jeremy Gingis, uh, Ara Noratsayan, Azim Sharif, and the political scientist Robert Axelrod. So the emerging picture from this research is complex, and uh, it must be underscored that it has produced ample evidence that religious people generally tend to favor their own group in uh, many, if not most, or all situations. Uh, 
just as we see in research on other types of identity groups, like ethnic groups and linguistic groups. This us-them dynamic, which pervades all social life, often foments conflict between groups of whatever kind. Um, to re return to Levine's notion, research on religious prosociality, however, is beginning to produce, in my view, much more useful theory about the relationships among religion, cooperation, and conflict than we have had previously from most theories about religion. There are many, many open questions uh, and debates still, by my reading of the literature, about how readily prosocial impulses extend beyond the boundary of one's religious group, for example, and about whether religion and conflicts, uh, conflict mix in ways that are different than the ways that other group markers and conflict mix. But the research is producing some useful consensus insights nonetheless. There are some features of this work uh, that some religious people may take issue with. Um, various findings about theoretical assertions that may not align well with the self-understandings of some religious people. Uh, but some of the scholars active in the field are deeply religious, um, and others like them are beginning to conduct research uh, designed to contribute uh, to the growing body uh, in, in the various phenomenon that others are investigating and also at times to probe seeming divergences between the research results and religious self-understandings. Uh, for example, Sarah Coakley, a theologian who was here on the HDS faculty when I was a student and who's now at Cambridge, has collaborated on projects like this with Martin Novak, a Harvard biologist and mathematician who's a Roman Catholic. Uh, Liz mentioned my work with the social psychologist Mariska Katmeyer. Um, so our, our speakers are going to unpack uh, some of this for you in just a moment, but let me just note briefly in closing uh, a couple reasons why I think this stream of research is especially important to our work in the RPP initiative. Um, first, and really importantly, I see this as one potential bridge between policymakers diplomats and sort of more secular conflict resolution practitioners on the one hand, and those operating in the religious peace building domain on the other hand. Sadly, in my view, uh, in the recently published 800 plus page Oxford Handbook of Religious Peace Building, there's one lone passing reference to uh, one study on religious prosociality in a single footnote in the book. Um, people in the religious peacebuilding field are generally unaware of the work on religious prosociality, this important stream of research that we're going to be introduced to tonight, or they're choosing to tune it out. Um, either way, this is unfortunate. We need these communities of scholarship and practice to be in dialogue, and that leads me to the second point. Uh, as I said, many of the insights research on religious pro-sociality is producing truly are practically useful. That may or may not have been the purpose when these researchers set out to do what they do, but a practitioner like me is finding great value in this research. Um, it's practically useful for policy, for practice, 
and even for preaching, I think, for leadership of religious communities, it shines light um, on what's going on. For instance, in, in uh, one study you're going to hear about tonight, um, introducing religion into the deliberations of a group of Palestinians positively influenced their attitudes toward Jewish Israelis. Um, as someone who facilitates discussions among Jewish and Muslim religious leaders in that part of the world in hope of finding eventual solutions to aspects of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that are infused with religious meaning, you can imagine how practically useful insights like this are, are to us. So I've tried to set the stage a little bit uh, for the discussion we're about to have. We're really, really excited that uh, Dr. Henrik and Dr. Hawk are with us tonight. We're very grateful to them. Uh, Dr. Henrik will speak first. Uh, he is currently a professor of human evolutionary biology here at Harvard. Before moving to Harvard, he was a professor of both economics and psychology at the University of British Columbia, where he held the Canada Research Chair in Culture, Cognition, and Coevolution. His research deploys evolutionary theory to understand how human psychology gives rise to cultural evolution and how this has shaped our species' genetic evolution. Using insights generated from this approach, Professor Heinrich has explored a variety of topics, including economic decision-making, social norms, fairness, religion, marriage, prestige, cooperation, and the evolution of societies and institutions. He has conducted fieldwork in Peru, Chile, and in the South Pacific, as well as having spearheaded several large comparative projects. In 2004, he won the Presidential Early Career Award for Young Scientists, and in 2009, the Early Career Award for Distinguished Contributions bestowed by the Human Behavior and Evolution Society. Dr. Henrik is also a senior fellow in the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. Uh, his latest book is The Secret of Our Success, How Culture is Driving Human Evolution, Domesticating Our Species, and Making Us Smart. Um, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Dr. Hawk as well, uh, who will speak after Dr. Heinrich, uh, Dr. Omar Sultan Haq uh, has an MD, a PhD, and a degree from an MTS from Harvard Divinity School. He's currently a lecturer in the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University. He's a social scientist and psychiatrist who investigates ethical and empirical questions at the intersection of religion, social science, and medicine. Uh, he was educated uh, here at Harvard Divinity School, as I mentioned. His, his medical degree is from Harvard Medical School, and he studied at Brown University as well. He is co-director of the UNESCO Chair in Bioethics American Unit and a researcher at the Program in Psychiatry in the Law in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's published articles on religious motivations for cooperation, the extent and nature of religious prosociality, 
Developmental Psychology of Religion, How Common Knowledge Improves Coordination, Why Westerners Have Joined ISIS, Modern Islamic Philosophy and Theology, Islamic Conceptions of Personhood, Why Physicians Were Early Joiners of the Nazi Party, Dehumanization in Hospital Cultures, as well as numerous papers and books in bioethics and law and psychiatry. This will be a very wide-ranging discussion <laughs> from people whose interests have ranged widely. So without further ado. Well, thanks, Jeff, and I want to thank Liz for putting this together. It's great to be here with you. Um, so when I got invited to talk about religion in the Divinity School, I knew that I was going to have to violate one of my cardinal rules, which is make sure you're the person who knows the most in the room about whatever topic you're going to talk about. But uh, within that spirit, I want to mention my giant set of co-authors here. So we wanted to tackle questions about the evolution of religion. We put together a team that includes anthropologists, psychologists, religious studies scholars, and historians. So the principal investigator on the main grant that funds this is actually named uh, Ted Slingerland, and he's a, he's a religious studies scholar, sinologist, recently turned cognitive scientist, I guess. So uh, that you'll, those, this will come up as I go along. So I got into this because I was interested in some basic evolutionary puzzles. And so the question of religion might not be a puzzle from certain perspectives, but from an evolutionary perspective, it's, there's a set of real puzzles there. So the first one is, why do people in most societies believe in some sort of supernatural agent? So gods, ghosts, demons, and, and elves. It, it, so Iceland, Icelanders believe in elves. They actually can't build highways because of the elves. Um, uh, now, of course, these, there's great variation in these supernatural beliefs, supernatural agents, and they vary over time. So that's one of the things I want to try to address in the next few minutes. Another pattern that anthropologists have documented across societies is communal rituals. They seem inc incredibly widespread and possibly universal across human societies, as well as personal devotions. So that seems to call forth an explanation. You can see from my picture of the uh, Hindu Kavadi, this is actually in Mauritius, done by one of our research team, Demetrius Zygalatis. Uh, it can be painful, and it's certainly costly, at least to an evolutionist, to, to engage in that sort of practice. Religionists also, of course, have long been putting up costly monumental architecture. So this is a picture of Gobekli Tepe, uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which, is, which was put up first by hunter-gatherers uh, right just prior to the Neolithic transition. So they were doing some, uh, some religious monumental architecture before agriculture. And this is a um, spirit house in New Guinea built by the Ablum. Okay, and the, the next question is really going to be my main focus. Is there something about these rituals or supernatural beliefs that can lead to greater cooperation or greater prosociality in, in some way? And a key question that's been of interest to social scientists for a, for a long time is can these beliefs and ritual practices assist in the scaling up of human societies? Can you expand the sphere of reliable, peaceful human interaction in a way that allows you to build larger societies? All right, now I am limited on time, so I want to briefly kind of zoom you in on the way we think about this stuff from an evolutionary approach. So if you want the in-depth story, you can look at my recent book, The Secret of Our Success. But one of the problems with evolutionary approaches to human behavior is going back to the 1970s, E.O. Wilson's office is actually right beneath mine in the Museum of Comparative Zoology, is to divide uh, approaches into evolutionary and biological approaches on the one hand and cultural learning explanations on the other hand. 
And what we've tried to do is take the logic of natural selection, the idea that we're products of evolution, and turn it on the question of how we learn. So who do we learn from? What kinds of ideas are we interested in? And then this allows us to build a theory of cultural evolution. So we're wired for culture in the sense that we're wired to learn in rich ways from each other, rich and sophisticated ways from each other. Now, one of the outcomes of this, which I won't have time to talk much about today, is that much of, I, I make the case in this book, that much of human genetic evolution is actually driven by cultural evolution. That it's the products of cultural evolution, whether that be fire, cooking, tools, social norms, institutions, ethnic groups, actually shaped much of our genetic evolution. Central to this is the notion of cumulative cultural evolution. Now, lots of species do social learning and have some local tool traditions and stuff. Chimpanzees are famous for this. But only humans have cumulative cultural evolution. And what this is is that one generation get a set of ideas, beliefs, values, practices to which the next generation adds a little bit. The tools get a little bit better, or the practices get a little bit more refined, and you can have this growing body of know-how, increasingly complex institutions that accumulate over generations. So this is a kind of non-genetic system of inheritance. And a lot of the theorizing is thinking about how those two, those two inheritance systems interact. All right, but once you're in this world of cumulative cultural evolution, Learners need to be able to put faith on the wisdom of prior generations because there are tools and practices for which they won't be able to understand how or why they work, but there's a lot of adaptive know-how embodied in that information, so you have to learn to just take it on faith sometimes. And this kind of gives us an entree to think about, to, about faith and ritual. It's how you get faith. And so let me go a little bit through cultural evolutionary theory. We start by thinking about the individual and about how natural selection has shaped his mind in ways that help him learn and make his way in the world. So young learners have to learn, well, what kinds of things are in my world? And cognitive scientists have shown that we have ready categorization machinery to divide the world up into things like snakes, dogs, and other kinds of species like gods, ghosts, and spirits. We also think about, well, what kind of objects are useful in the world? We think about those differently from things like snakes and dogs. So bows and, bows and arrows, poison, sacred healing dances, and shovels. Now, as part of this, we have content biases, which means it's easier for us to learn some things compared to other things. So some ideas are tastier to our minds. Simple example will have to suffice. So it's very easy to teach young children, and actually monkeys, that snakes are dangerous. So one trial learning, they see an adult show fear from a snake, and then they're afraid of snakes. It's much harder to teach them that snakes are friendly and safe. Um, you can teach someone that, but it, it takes a lot of work. So one has a heavy content bias, and one doesn't. Um, this might be why, for example, we find snakes are so common in stories and myths and legends and religions, but you don't find many puppies or mosquitoes. E even though mosquitoes are the most dangerous animal on the planet, right? The most dangerous creature. Okay, so this gives you a sense, this emphasis on content is much of the meat of the cognitive science of religion. Now to that, you, had to t you have to take into account that humans also attend to who in their environment they should pay attention to. So from a young age, actually from age one, kids begin to paying attention to things like success, prestige, sex, age, dialect, and, and other kinds of things, which allow them to direct their attention to some members of their social group and not others. So there's a selective filtering that's going on as children learn. And this leads to cultural evolution. So what we do when we do cultural evolutionary work is we think about how these different aspects of mind, we put individuals in the population, this guy has a new and unique idea, and then we think about how that's going to change over time. And you can begin to predict which ideas are going to spread and under what conditions some ideas will spread and others won't. 
So here we're thinking about culture as a change in the dis or cultural evolution as a change in the distribution of ideas, beliefs, values, practices, whatever it is the cultural thing you're, you're thinking about. So this allows us to understand the evolution of culture within groups. It can also get you to understand norms and institutions, which I'm happy to say more about if people have questions. Um, but the important thing for where I want to get to today is that there's another level, and this is intergroup competition. So different social groups, different communities, different societies can come to have different packages of beliefs, institutions, values, motivations that are stable for a time, or at least they're like roughly stable. But then what happens when different groups have these and they lead, and some beliefs and some values and some practices, think about rituals and things like that, lead to success in intergroup competition. So they might make the group be more cooperative, they might be more successful in warfare, they might be more economically productive. Any number of things could lead to success in intergroup competition. That means intergroup competition is going to favor those ideas which allow groups to be more successful. All right. Now, there's a bunch of different ways that this intergroup competition can work, and I think it's important to emphasize them just because people often only think about the first one, violent conflict. So if you can be more cooperative, you can, you can be braver on the battlefield, you can put more, more soldiers on the battlefield or whatever, so you can expand violently, assimilate other groups. But you can also have this through biased migration. So if some groups are particularly successful and prosperous, then others are going to want to migrate into that group. And that means that and as they get socialized and their children get socialized in a new group, that group expands and the distribution of ideas, beliefs, uh, and values in the society are changing. Societies also preferentially copy more successful groups, groups with more prestige. And so that just causes ideas, institutions, and beliefs to flow from one society to another as we look over at that other group and say, those guys are doing pretty well. And we have great cases from the highlands of New Guinea because they have practices where they'll decide that there's a particularly successful group and they'll send a, gr a group to that group to, to study their cult and, and their ritual practices, learn them and bring them back to theirs. So it makes it very explicit. All right, another one is demographic expansion. So if there's something about your package, your cultural package that causes you to have more babies, then your group's going to expand more quickly than groups who have fewer babies. Interesting case is the sociologist Rodney Stark has argued that early Christianity spread faster because the Roman elite had gone through a demographic transition. They weren't having very many kids. Augustus was very worried about this. Uh, but early Christians were having lots of babies, and so they sort of outpaced the, the Romans. He's also made the case that Mormons uh, have uh, done well in that because of their demographics. Okay, so that just gives you a few examples. Now, digging in a bit further, we can break these packages down into three parts. Uh, this is the one I'm mostly going to talk about. So you can have elements of culture that allow the group to cooperate if certain beliefs lead people to be more cooperative. So you might have a, a belief in a pro-social moralizing God that punishes people who don't behave in ways that allow the group to be successful. Another thing you might have is a set of rituals. And I won't have time to talk about rituals, but I'll just say that there's now a, a good chunk of research showing that rituals can lead to greater social bonding. They build solidarity in groups. They help people cooperate, even in these behavioral economic games more. So there are certain rituals that are very good for bonding, bonding the participants and even observers of the participants. There seem to be other rituals that do something else. They deepen people's beliefs in the gods. So these two can be positively interacting because you perform certain rituals. And by the end of the ritual, you've deepened your commitment and your faith in the god who then punishes you if you don't behave in, in whatever, whatever that God cares about. And then finally, institutional practices. So 
uh, religions seem to harness other aspects of our psychology. So in, the, in my book, I call it the tribal psychology. Other evolutionary researchers call it that. But uh, religions, like other kinds of groups, will mark themselves with a, with a special language or with certain kinds of dress or other kinds of markers that distinguish that. And that seems to tap into a piece of our evolved psychology and makes, makes things a little bit more groupish. Um, I'll talk about monuments a little bit more when I talk about um, priming. Okay, just um, to provide a kind of introduction to this, I'm going to focus narrowly on beliefs for the remainder of our time. Okay, so anything about God's God belief, punishment, afterlife beliefs that leads to success in intergroup competition can be favored. So these might be things that uh, create greater solidarity, maintain internal harmony, foster trade, increase stability against shocks, or allow for a complex division of labor could be favored. Uh, one of the interesting things about religions is they all come up with eye iconography. So Jesus is watching here, there's an adult video story. And uh, this is the eye of Horus from Egyptian religion. Uh, the back of the $1 bill has the all-seeing eye on it. It keeps an eye on you. Okay, so uh, things about supernatural agents that might be important. The first thing is they need to be moralizing. Now, people attach a lot of baggage to the word moralizing. The word moral doesn't matter here. What's important is that uh, the agent or agents um, is concerned about those things that humans don't do well. So being concerned that mothers love their children is not an issue. Uh, natural selection took care of that a long time ago. But how you treat a stranger or someone who you have a conflict with, um, anything that will maintain kind of greater harmony in a larger and larger group is where the action's at. This, these beings are going to have to monitor, right? So anything that increases their vigilance. I'll talk about gods of small-scale societies, but the degree to which beings could know what you're doing and what's in your heart continue to expand over historical time, at least in some traditions. And then, of course, power. So at some point, gods get control over afterlife, and that seems to be an increase in power over, over earlier gods. And they also might be concerned about having more babies for, for the reasons I mentioned before. Okay. Now... Many people are unaware that the gods of, the, of modern world religions are quite different from those that anthropologists have studied in small-scale societies. So gods of the smallest-scale societies, hunter-gatherer societies, are typically not morally concerned. So this is something that happens over historical time. Uh, they're weak, they're whimsical, they're certainly not omniscient, they can be bought off by ritual, there's rituals where you actually scold them, they can be tricked sometimes, um, so there, but uh, other agents in the world. And people may often believe in afterlife, some sort of afterlife notions of ghosts, but they don't have the notion that what you do in this life can promote you in the afterlife, can get you to a better place. Um, in, some, in, some in some places, uh, where you're at when you die actually determines. So if you happen to be at sea, you go to one place. If you happen to be on land, another place. And so there's been a lot of analysis of the available anthropological database, and it tells roughly the same story, which is that the larger, more politically complex societies have more bigger and more moralizing gods. This is a simple graph. There's been, there's been lots of other studies that are, are more complicated. Now, a bunch of things move together. So political complexity, size, and stratification all scale together. Now, this is an interesting piece of evidence, and it's consistent with the idea that these gods can help societies scale up. But it could be that it doesn't, the God's not doing any work, that people in bigger societies make up bigger gods, they imagine bigger gods. So the, what I'm going to show you now is our effort to suggest that this believing in the God is doing work. He's increasing the sphere, expanding the sphere of cooperation. Okay, 
So we did this as wave one of our CERC project. So we uh, pulled together a team of anthropologists. We worked out a protocol to test some of the theoretical ideas and sent the anthropologists to their field sites where there are experts all over the world working among groups of small-scale farmers, pastoralists, hunter-gatherers, and wives. Those are redundant. Um, never noticed that. I've given this talk like 50 times. I never saw it redundant. Uh, so our question here is we wanted to go one step beyond prior work. And prior work has shown that uh, believing in or being an adherent to a world religion leads to more pro-sociality in these behavioral games I'll be talking about. The problem is there's a bunch of things that weren't clear about that, like what about the world religion might have been doing the work. So we have particular predictions about certain supernatural beliefs and how they uh, link to greater pro-sociality. So we designed our experiment to test that and to measure that and our other data collections. And we also want to be clear about the religion of the recipient, which this prior work wasn't. We also designed a special experimental task that meant the, the experimenter himself couldn't know what the person was doing, whether they were cheating in the task. Only a, an omniscient uh, supernatural being could know. Now this is our task. Uh, so you're, each participant in all these societies all around the world are seated by themselves in a room. Sometimes it was a tent that we brought specially in order to do it. They have a pile of coins in front of them. And before they put the coins in one of these two cups, one cup is for themselves, money they'll take home, and the second cup is for a co-religionist. So someone who has the same beliefs as them but lives in a faraway place for which they have no social connections to. They pick one of the two cups in their mind, and only in their mind, and then they roll the dice. If it comes up black, they put it in the cup they were thinking of in their mind. If it comes up white, they have to put it in the other cup. Now you'll... Now this is, you know, completely on the up and up. We can't tell what the subjects are doing. We can't read their minds yet. Um, we, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll be able to in a few years. But uh, for now, we have to do it the old-fashioned way, which is we have statistics. So we know in expectation there has to be 15 coins in each cup. And the further they deviate from that, the higher the probability is that they were biased one way or the other. And some people just put all the coins in this cup. <laughs> that can't happen in, like, the history of the universe or something. All right. Now, we also then replace the self-cup with the in-group cup, someone from your village, so we can compare how they allocate to another member of their village to this distant person. So that's the question is, is this spear expanded? Is it bigger than your village? All right. Now, as part of our early interviews, before we did any of this, we interviewed and we located two supernatural beings. One was the locally biggest god we could find. So moralizing, control over afterlife. Uh, the more of those things, the better. So we picked out the biggest one. And the other was a locally important smaller god. So it had to be something, somebody that was relevant but doesn't have omniscience and has limited punishing powers. And for those gods, we measured um, their punishing power with a mix of interview questions and how much the god knows. So would they know what you're doing if you go to the nearby town or something like that? Ancestor gods, for example, don't know what you're doing when you go to town, so the men misbehave when they go to town. All right. So just to give you a rough sense of the data, uh, this is the number of 15 coins per cup. So this is the number of allocations to the Corel cup. So that's the distant co-religionist. We're always talking about the distant person. And the first thing to notice is that people are all below 15, right? So this is, this is a good sanity check for me, right? Everybody's kind of selfish, right? They all prefer themselves and their local God. The question is, can believing in a punishing God push you towards being more fair, being more impartial in this case, allocating according to the dice? And what we find is this, you know, fairly strong effect. You go from a little bit above 12 to up near 15 if you believe the big God is more punishing. I like to put up this plot because 
we have these don't know values. So the Hadza, who are hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, and uh, people who live in custom villages in Vanuatu answered, they don't know how punishing the big guy is, which always struck me as like, the correct answer. But um, anyway. Okay, now that is just a, you know, gives you a visualization actually looking at the data. But um, now we put into a regression model where we're trying to predict where people are putting, putting the, the coins. And we're using people's beliefs in the omniscience of the big god and the punishment. And what this shows is that you're just more likely to put a coin in the, in the cup for the co-religionists. In other words, you're being more impartial when you believe in this punishing god. Crucially, beliefs about the local god don't matter. So if we had found this both of these matter, then that wouldn't have been good for us because it would have been these people are just generally people who believe in this stuff rather than the specific beliefs matter. And we also put in, I put material insecurity on here just to show you that, that that doesn't matter. Um, and this also has controls for age, sex, and education. And it also has something called site fixed effects, which means we're absorbing all the variation between these groups and we're only looking at the difference between individuals within groups. So nothing else about the difference between these groups can matter. It's only differences within. All right, so this is consistent with the idea that these certain kinds of beliefs about big gods can expand the sphere. You're, you're more impartial towards that distant co-religionist. Um, and just last weekend, we had the workshop here at Harvard where we did wave two. And in wave two, we redid all these experiments in a new set of groups. Uh, we added some additional experiments to look at out-group versus in-group, the Corel versus someone who's not of your religion. And we also did something called a dictator game, which is another kind of game. And we're able to basically replicate the result. I mean, it was shocking how much we were able to replicate. And so now we have this big data set of 15 societies. We also show it in the dictator game. Now, interestingly, the in-group out, the Corel versus out-group stuff is, is interesting. Um, I'm not going to say much about it today, but it's complex. So that fits with some of the existing findings on that question. Okay, now the problem with what I've just showed you, it's very hard actually to make the argument that it's not causal. But we don't have a real experiment here. It really is just a correlation. So the way we get a causality, and this was first done by Arnor and Zion and Najim Sharif, is they did what psychologists call priming. So you bring people into the lab, and you randomly put them either into a control group or you put them into a, a group that's going to be unconsciously reminded of God. So both groups do word, uh, word sorting tasks. And some of the words they have to unjumble are God, divine, spirit, prophet, and sacred, mixed in with some other words so you don't notice. And we ask them at the end whether they notice, and people don't generally notice. And the control is doing a similar word jumble without these. And then you have them do some kind of behavioral measure. It could be a cheating game. In this case, it was a dictator game. So you get a sum of money, $10. You can give as much as you want to another anonymous person, uh, and that's it. So just a question of how much you want to give in this situation. All right, so this is their original results. It's, I thought it would be useful to, to walk you through this. These are the different offers you could make in the, in the prime condition. And you can see that most people, this big red bar, give zero. So that means they keep all $10 for themselves and give the other person zero. This is very typical university student result. Older people do, do are a little nicer. And you can see there's a big line here at 50. People don't give more than half at all. When you prime people unconsciously with God, 50-50 offers. So that's the big difference. This goes way down. All right. So this is the neutral prime. Mean offers, this is the same data, uh, about 25%. This is the religious prime right there. Now, interestingly, they also did a secular prime. So using the same word jumble, they 
uh, unconsciously reminded people of police, courts, constable, uh, things like that, contract. And so you get a bump there. Now, crucial for testing our idea is then you check atheists. And the secular prime works on the atheist, but the religious prime doesn't. This is important because you might have worried that the religious prime, so atheists will know that you know, God and prophet are associated with being nice. So it might be just priming some general sense of niceness. But the fact that it doesn't work on the atheist and this disappears means it's something about believing right in this stuff. Okay, now if you're familiar with psychology, you should worry about what I just told you. Because priming studies have a bit of a history of not always replicating. Sometimes psychologists, due to the incentives of the institution, will run an experiment, they won't, they won't work, and they just file it in the circular file. So it just disappears in history and never gets published. So what my colleagues, and this is done by one of our CERT team, Ayana Willard, um, she compiled all the studies uh, that, that were available at the time. So 26 different studies where there was some kind of religious priming with some kind of pro-sociality metric. And so these are the effect sizes. So if you're above on this side, and you know, these are the confidence intervals. So if you're, if, like, this study is complete, you're seeing a big religious priming effect. This study is actually showing a religious priming effect in the other direction. So you want to look at all these studies together, and what she finds is that there's a, a small to moderate effect size, that religious priming does seem to increase people's religious pro-sociality in a number of different experimental paradigms. So I've told you about a, one kind of cheating paradigm, and I've told you about the dictator game. And crucially, when they divided the sample up into religious people and non-religious people, the effect size gets bigger. It goes to 38 and the effect on non-religious people goes down to near zero. So that's consistent with the, the other result I just told you about. Um, now, the state of this literature, so this is a good piece of evidence. It's still too Christian biased. Uh, there is a couple of studies among uh, Muslims and Hindus, and they are positive effects in here, um, but it's still dominated by Christians. There's also been insufficient attention to the in-group, out-group. So this is typically given to somebody else without specifying enough information. Uh, there's a little bit of work suggesting that people are differentiating, but then there's some suggesting they aren't. So uh, we don't have a good answer, a clear answer to that. And then finally, um, closing up now, um, the last kind of question that I think is really important, we use these behavioral economic type games because it gives us control. It allows us to measure someone when they're by themselves, you know, not under peer pressure, not able to show off. Um, but there's always a question of whether those uh, experiments tell us anything about the real world. So one of the things we've tried to do is compile evidence from the real world to see if that converges with the story that we get from the experimental games. So this is another study by Azim Sharif, and he gathered crime data from around the world. You can do it a few different ways. This, in this case, he, he compiled all the crime together for different countries. So these are all different countries. And then typically, there's more, a higher percentage of people in a country who believe in heaven versus hell. I guess heaven's a nicer belief and hell's sort of uncomfortable. Um, so you end up with a higher percentage. So he subtracted them and he finds that basically believing in hell leads to less crime. So these are places where people just believe in heaven and no hell and then this is the, the hell believers. And so that's, it, this is consistent with a lot of our results where punishment matters. So in the, in the results I was just telling you about um, where we measured, we also measured big, big God rewarding and that didn't have any effect. So what matters is big God punishing, not big God rewarding. It's also consistent with some theory which I won't get into. And then uh, my colleagues, uh, Jonathan Bauer in economics and Rachel McCleary, they looked at longitudinal data and they're able to show that belief in hell predicts greater economic growth in the subsequent decades. And you know, they're, they're economists and so they're controlling and removing statistically all the other factors that lead to economic growth 
And so they point to these, super, these afterlife beliefs as leading to greater economic growth. The point of these, these are just two among a large collection of examples, is that um, here we have supernatural beliefs increase in internal harmony, leading to greater economic output. That's this one. And this is the kind of thing you'd expect to lead to greater success in intergroup competition. So this is consistent with the, the, the cultural evolutionary story I gave you. All right. Um, so some final points is that uh, we think that uh, you know, the general approach taken by the cognitive science of religion is right and that we have these strong content biases that make us susceptible to all kinds of interesting beliefs, supernatural uh, agent beliefs, afterlife beliefs. But it's been this uh, intergroup competition which has shaped these beliefs in ways that lead to greater pro-sociality and have allowed it to expand the sphere, sphere and uh, helping to scale up human societies. So I've showed you a few different kinds of evidence. Um, now, I just want to mention one other thing we've been working on which might be of interest to the group. We've, so I've shown you, so if you increase religious belief, you can get greater parochial cooperation. There's a question about how parochial it is. Happy to talk about that. Um, and we've also now shown this arrow, which is if people experience war, they actually become more religious. So we've isolated a number of natural experiments around the world where people have been exposed to war sort of randomly by bombing or something. And people who experience bombing as a child or a young adult are more religious for their whole life, essentially. So you increase religious belief. Now, this could create a vicious circle, right? If all these arrows hold, then you could end up getting more religion, more parochial cooperation, more war, and you could imagine a vicious cycle. So one question is, is how do you, you short-circuit the, the vicious cycle? All right. And just a general point. So I'm interested in the evolution of complex societies. I see religion as one trick. There's a whole bunch of other tricks you need to, to scale up human societies. Remember that before about 12,000 years ago, our species lived in relatively small-scale hunting and gathering bands. So we've really dramatically changed our social organization in a short period of time. I mean, we're basically a tropical primate. One final point that might be of interest is that um, based on inferences from the smallest scale human societies, this idea that morality and supernatural agents went together was really something that's happened over human evolutionary history. And the cultural evolutionary processes I've described is what entwined, um, in, my, in my argument, entwined morality uh, with supernatural belief. And you don't find this in the smallest scale human societies. All right, that's all for me. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for your, your interest, and thanks to uh, uh, Dean Hampton and uh, Jeff and Liz and everyone for organizing this. I'm, uh, I'm going to try to situate this in, in, in the context of uh, you know, scholars of religion and students of religion to try to uh, kind of help digest some of the great insights uh, Joe has, has brought to you. So um, the approach that we're suggesting or have championed in some ways is, is, a, is an approach to study of religion that's um, in terms of its functions. How does, what does it do in the world to lead to or uh, pr produce survival uh, reproduction? And so in the sense, it's, it's, a, it's a social science of religion 3.0. Uh, if Freud, Marx, and Weber were in Durkheim were kind of 1 and 2.0, this is um, Freud without the edible complex uh, and the, the you know, penis envy, 
Marx without the uh, inevitable revolution and uh, Durkheim without the superorganism independent of the mind uh, with experiments. So that's the first thing to think about. <laughs> and, and the second thing is it's not a challenge to or uh, you know, a threat to phenomenology of religion, literary or symbolic uh, approaches to religion, uh, philosophical or normative speculations or historical work. This is really orthogonal to it and should inform those approaches. And so um, in terms of the function, so what function does religion have? One can ask that question in terms of one's own life, mental functioning, uh, kin functioning, family relationship functioning. We're asking the question in terms of group functioning. How does it allow groups to function better or, or worse? And you could ask about functioning in other domains. So you could ask about legal functions of religion, educational, medical, existential, political, aesthetic, architectural, medical functions of religion. We're really focusing on social uh, cooperative functions within groups. And, and one of the goals is to try to explain, you know, did the rise of civilization precede religion or was religion a cause for the rise of civilization? Where does the causal arrow go? And that's what a lot of the great experiments Joe has pioneered have shown. So um, I, uh, I'm going to focus on making more practical suggestions based on the experimental work. So if you're trying to solve a religious conflict and you're trying to negotiate with someone and, uh, for example, Israelis and Palestinians. What can this work contribute to your understanding of practical solutions? So I'm going to start off by thinking like a physician here. If you have an acute problem, what should you do? And, uh, you know, finding peace during religious conflict. And number two, uh, which will be the first part, what can you do prophylactically, preventatively, um, when there's not active conflict? How can you cultivate um, resources from within these traditions to produce uh, more peace and less violence? In some ways, the theologians and the scholars of religion are the, um, the people who nudge uh, evolution in one direction or another. So as a thinker, as an intellectual, you are contributing to the cultural evolution of a religion. So the first part is, is science. The second is philosophy and theology. So intervention number one. So imagine you're a negotiator. You're trying to, you know, you're President Clinton here with Yitzhak Rabin or Yasser Arafat uh, or in a modern, modern version with a more awkward handshake. Uh, <laughs> Saab Irkat and uh, Miss Livni um, with John Kerry. You know, how, would you, how would you get this to happen? What can you, what can you use? So I'm going to give the first, the first intervention is um, does thinking from the perspective of God help or hurt? And this is the experiment. Okay, so say you're uh, watching this vignette. You have to decide. There's a train. This is a famous trolley problem applied to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. So you, you have to decide, should you... You, should you allow this trolley that's barreling down the tracks to run over five children, the only thing you can do to stop it is decide, should I push this person over the bridge that, will, that you know will definitely stop the, the, the train? Should you do it or not? So this is the vignette. This study was done in the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict region, and it uh, asked Palestinian uh, children about what they would do. So this is the vignette. Imagine that a man called Hadi is standing at a footbridge at night looking a truck as it speeds out of control down the road, it's clear that the driver is sleepy and out of control. If the truck does not stop, it will kill five Palestinian children playing on the road. Hadi realizes that the only way he can save the children is to push the very large Palestinian man off the bridge in front of the speeding truck. He's, it's a large person because previously people thought if it wasn't a large person, it wouldn't stop the train. <laughs> um, in front of the speeding truck to stop the truck and warn the driver. If he does this, the truck will hit the Palestinian man and he will almost certainly die, but the truck will stop and the five Palestinian children will be saved. So what do you think he should do? This is 11 to 13 year old children in a war conflict region 
who are very motivated to think about themselves and the outgroup. So should you push the Palestinian men off the footbridge to save the children or not push? And then the crucial question, what do you think God would approve of doing? Pushing the Palestinian off the footbridge or not pushing it? And then they, they gave the same uh, vignette, except they changed it to Jewish-Israeli children rather than Palestinian children. And they wanted to see, obviously everyone prefers their in-group somewhat, does the, does the amount that the children would say, oh, you know, definitely like push the guy, uh, change if it was judging children on the tracks being Israeli or Palestinian? So this is the, the morbid mind of the scientist, right? So you have to think, it actually has a point though. And so the percentage of participants who valued Palestinian lives over Jewish lives, when asked the question, what would you do? About 40% of the uh, participants, children, would value the Palestinian life over the Israeli life. When asked, what about, if you think about it from God's perspective, they, it went down to 25%. And this was replicated across different sites uh, if you change the order of the questions and so on. So it's a pretty predictable finding, but uh, on its face, pretty impressive. Thinking about it from the perspective of God somehow makes people less biased in an active conflict region. Um, so God is in some way more approving of helping outsiders. Now, this has been replicated in other, in, in other, in other guises. So in similar result, um, college students in Illinois. So you, you have a bunch of college students and you give them a situation. Do you want to help this person uh, on the road who's fallen, who's a part of your in-group or an out-group? Um, and they're primed to think about God in one situation or primed to think about a religious leader or institution. Now why is that different? If you think about the institution or a religious leader, you're thinking about a place you might go, an institution you might know. It's more about the in-group, whereas when you think about God, the, the, theories, the theory goes, uh, you're more abstracted away from your local group. And that's kind of what they find. So when people are given the God situation prime, they become more pro-social to the out-group. Um, you know, you could have predicted it wouldn't make a difference whether you, whether you get people to think about their institution or think about God's perspective, think about a God perspective. Um, and these uh, engage more thoughts about all people being equal or having universal norms. So here's the, the study. So uh, you start off without any primes, and you just notice that if you ask who do you want to help on the street, most people prefer their in-group, which is kind of what you'd expect. Then when you give the prime about your religious institution, more people kind of boost their in-group preference, right? Because it's like my building, my leader. And then if you say, what about from God's perspective, it shifts actually entirely. So you get more preference for um, the out-group. So just like the other study, you see something happening when people are forced to think beyond themselves from a third-party perspective. And now, um, to bring it a little more personally to your lives, um, there's actually been, there's a similar mechanism in romantic relationship conflict. <laughs> so tonight you're gonna get uh, peacemaking advice in your bedroom and the boardroom. <laughs> so uh, one study by Eli Finkel at Northwestern, you take 120 couples having relationship disagreements and you ask them to think about it um, think about this disagreement with your partner from the perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for all involved. And they do this three times over the year, only for 21 minutes over 12 months. 21 minutes over 12 months. Imagine how much time people spend fighting. So <laughs> more than 21 minutes probably in a day. Uh, so you do this three times a year for 21 minutes total. Seven minutes each time. And you watch people over two years. People in blue are the, the group that got this intervention. The black is, after, these are all newlyweds, by the way. 
So um, anyone, I don't, I don't want to burst any bubbles, but after getting married, things kind of aren't always the same as right before getting married, and people tend to have this gradual decline in, um, in satisfaction in their marriage. So over time, over two years, you see this little gradual decline, and he was able to show if you do this little intervention where you think about things from a third-person perspective, you can uh, plateau that decline. Didn't show that it goes back to the uh, honeymoon period, but it does slow, slow the decline. And I think that you have a similar mechanism here. You're forced to think of things beyond yourself, beyond your group. So that's intervention number one. So what can we say? If you were going to help a negotiator figure out what to do, you could, if you're dealing with two people who are uh, in, in interreligious conflict, both are theists, you could say, you know, take the decision, think about the decision from God's perspective, which is kind of paradoxical. You might think, well, that should inflame things more. But it turns out it doesn't. So that's one really good uh, advice. Um, advice number two, I would say, uh, is this uh, sacred values uh, issue. So just think about what this is. This is the Temple Mount, as seen from the Mount of Olives. Um, if you're a physicist, you might think of this just in terms of its bricks and mortar. Uh, if you're an economist, you might analyze it in terms of its um, you know, opportunity costs and resource values. But people don't look at this in terms of its material function or value. Uh, they, they attach a sacred value to it. And not just because it's religious. Think about um, debates we have today about drilling in the Arctic or uh, using land. Is land a resource? Is it fungible, interchangeable with any other square foot of uh, dirt and oil? Or is there something special about it? So we attribute sacredness to lots of things. And this research paradigm uh, uh, tries to get at what is this thing that people do when they think about sacred values. Now, what is a sacred value? Um, it's kind of the opposite of the way economists tend to think about things. Uh, or at least most economists, but it's when you think of something as not primarily in terms of its utilitarian or pragmatic trade-off. Uh, you know, how much money would you sell your grandmother for, right? Only an economist can ask that question, but no one really answers it. Why not? Because you were, were disgusted by the question. Why are you disgusted by the question? Because grandma is someone you love, and when you love something, it's sacred to you. And so that kind of thinking is not in the world of negotiators. Negotiators think in terms of um, the rational actor, utilitarian model of humans, which um, is weird, you know? It's, it's, not, it's not common. And so what happens when you give people a material incentive to compromise their sacred value? Like if someone had said that to me, people get outraged, angry, disgusted. They reject the deal. They say, I don't want your money. And so in the context of negotiation, this, this is a really good piece of advice. And what you, what you see is things actually backfire. So this is an example of a study from Iranians in 2010, where uh, Iranians started to regard uh, their, they have a sacred right to a nu the nuclear program. Uh, they were offered a conflict resolution deal involving substantial economic aid and, no and relaxation of sanctions And in one situation. And in the other situation, they had the exact same deal, except uh, you know, they got kind of these utilitarian, uh, uh, without the money. And so people were more opposed to the deal when the money was added. So you get more money and people reject the deal more. Because there's something about that way of thinking that makes people disgusted or angry. And it's called the backfire effect. Same thing was shown in Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict in 2005. Uh, for, the, for the Palestinian state um, plus substantial economic aid plus money, get lost. So there's something about this. Um, that's not really appreciated yet in negotiations. So in negotiations, address the sacred value. Don't think of it as a, um, an externality to the real um, expected value calculation that you might do as an economist. Um, 
Don't offer material incentives to compromise someone's sacred values. And number two, maybe offer to compromise your own sacred value for someone else's sacred value. Because then you're dealing on things uh, in the same kind of plane of, of thinking. Uh, offering symbolic gestures, you know, uh, we will recognize, uh, we might apologize for something that we did, uh, which, you know, if you ask people, you go, you know, you go to different sides of a conflict, what, you ask someone, what do you really want from the other side? It's often not uh, money or more, more um, you know, buildings. It's, you know, first they have to apologize. Or first they have to recognize our right to this or that. But those are really kind of not material things. So uh, showing respect for other sacred values, offering sincere apologies, relinquishing claims and narratives. You know, a lot of people, what people fight over is narratives. You know, who really, who really is essentially belonging here? Uh, another uh, strategy is to reframe a uh, sacred value in terms of another sacred value. So this land is not something you're giving up. It's something you're giving to your children, which is also sacred to you. So there's a lot of kind of play in how this could work, but it's not really a part of uh, negotiation. But it's really grounded in, in great psychological research. So that's intervention number two. Um, what about intervention number three? So, we just came out of a really bad election, a really contentious year of political debate. Um, this is kind of year, uh, everyday year for Israelis and Palestinians. So <clears throat> one of the things you notice, though, is how, if you think about it, ask each of these people, why did, what does the other person fight about? Why are you fighting? Why are you angry? Think about asking yourself, and maybe if you're in the situation, someone in this group, what are you fighting for? Why is the other person fighting against you? you know, they're very unlikely to say, you know, they're really fighting against me because they really love their families and they're, they're really trying to do the best they can and they're, they're really looking for good values. More, we're more likely to hear, they want to hurt us. They hate us. You know, they're, they're bad people. So we call this motive attribution asymmetry. So my group's aggression, when I go and attack the other group, it's because I love my people. I don't really hate them, I just love my people. I want to save my village, my family. But when they attack me, it's because they hate me, not because they love their... Right, so that's, that's the asymmetry. Now, it seems subtle, but uh, in, a, in a great experiment um, that I'll show you um, by uh, uh, my colleagues, uh, Leanne Young and Adam Waits and Jeremy Ginges, they showed that if you, um, if, you, if you look at this bias, number one, it's a huge part of intractable conflicts. So what makes a conflict not just a skirmish, but an intractable conflict, is this particular way of thinking about the outsider. And people become less optimistic about peace, uh, willing to negotiate, believe in the value of compromise, voting for a peace deal. So if you can intervene on this, they, they were able to show that if you can change that way of thinking, it actually reverses some of that intractability. So if you're going to be a negotiator in a religious conflict, you want to reduce this bias. Convince other people that other groups act out of love of their group and to protect what they value, not just you. And you know, most people come around to it. Um, so what would you do? Number one, encourage people to take uh, a God's eye view, optimize offers regarding sacred values, and correct these asymmetries in motives. Uh, and there's dozens of others. You could, you could, you could write a whole book on this. Um, so that's part one. That's like, how do you stop the bleeding? Three, three tips to stop the bleeding. Now two, People in the study of religion, people in theology and philosophy are in a unique place to figure out what 
a, a resource is within a religious tradition and what to cultivate and what to staunch. And so the second part of this is really more philosophy and theology. So you might think, if I'm going to, and remember, this is about what's functional for the religion, what's going to create peace. If our goal is peace, how can you, uh, uh, you know, move religions in one direction versus another? You might think the approach is, let's just take all the great research Joe uh, described and see what are these beliefs and practices that make people cooperate more. You know, increase those things. Cooperation. Let's make those things more likely. So um, increase practices like costly and arousing rituals, synchronous rituals, right? If you, if, you, if you move in synchrony with someone, you're more cooperative. Um, if you have a costly arousing ritual, like the fire walking, people are more cooperative. Even people observing the fire walking are more cooperative. Um, costly requirements and prohibitions, uh, eating uh, taboos, clothing taboos, these things tend to increase cooperation. And then beliefs like the agentic, morally concerned, powerful gods, uh, rewards and punishments, moral, real, moral realism. These are the things we know increase cooperation. So you might just say, well, let's just do more of that. But um, what increases cooperation within a group may not do so between groups when they're fighting. And in fact, um, the things that have evolved to create cooperation within a group may operate by different mechanisms and may need to be kind of subverted or supplanted in different ways. So you might get uh, more in-group cooperation, but more between-group competition or conflict. You know, that's kind of an open question. How much of these things are, can spill over into generalized uh, cooperation, how much they can. So it's not obvious that we can just make people more cooperative by doing all the things we already do within a religious tradition. That's, a, that's kind of a, a first step that I would say is a bad idea to assume. Now, approach B would be top-down. What would top-down mean? Look at what peaceful religions do and try to emulate them. That's kind of like starting with the ethnography of peace and, and re-engineering things. So uh, and when I was here, I studied with this theologian, Gordon Kaufman, who was uh, all about constructive theology, so it kind of inspired me. So here's, here's eight theological resources inspired by me and Gordon Goffman. <laughs> so first, if your in-group goes to all humanity as opposed to your group, such as by uh, reference to notions like equality before God and an emphasis on common humanity, you're much less likely to be able to justify killing an outsider. And uh, Peter Singer wrote this uh, book in the 70s called The Expanding Circle, He's a utilitarian, but the basic idea is the same. You, you might want to stop it. Animals, maybe you don't want to expand the circle there. Um, but you can you know, at least go from the in-group to humans. And that, that uh, is a great uh, form of progress to prevent violence. Number two, one of the great things that religious traditions have are deontological rules against killing other people. Now, they're not often followed, obviously, but at least they're there. And there's a notion of human dignity, human rights, inviolability of, of personhood. Um, for example, being made in the image of God. So, uh, so more of that and um, uh, less of the, uh, the opposite. Um, and why it's important is because uh, these are two good books by uh, Nicholas Wolterstorff and, and uh, uh, Mark Perry, which argue that uh, this idea of dignity and viability is really, really hard to find in utilitarian ethics, in secular ethics. So um, if you remember Jeremy Bentham, the philosopher who kind of... Uh, it pioneered utilitarianism, he called the human rights nonsense on stilts. And so, so since, that, since Bentham, it's been really hard to, to find theories and practices that uh, have a space for this idea of, of human rights and human dignity. So that's kind of a resource. Number three, deontolo deontological rules against killing oneself. Um, so 
if the, uh, and this is, uh, religious groups have lower rates of suicide, and um, religion seems to be a protective factor against suicide uh, in general. So the idea that the body is sacred, the body is a gift from God, humans are kind of custodians of their bodies. This basic idea can be really useful for cultivating. Um, so for example, here's um, uh, a study showing that moral objections to suicide are really the key way that religion protects against suicide. Um, so uh, the, the, the relationship between religion and lower suicide attempts is entirely mediated by uh, moral objections to suicide. So that idea that the religions can cultivate that belief would be good. Why? Because if, if, you're, if you're contemplating suicide, you say, oh, it's a grave sin, as opposed to, wow, I'll become a martyr. Um, you know, more of this and less of that is probably good. Um, and, and so this is kind of not something often, and this is really the suicide uh, bomber's dilemma, if you think about what, uh, you know, saying to someone, are you really sure that that guy who keeps telling you to kill yourself is trustworthy, as opposed to can you, you know, kind of read that part about God saying you shouldn't kill yourself, it's a really subtle decision people have to make when they when they give up their life, um, and but more emphasis on that could be could be helpful. Number four, pluralism towards other traditions. If the other has something I can learn from, uh, and they're not automatically dehumanized, they're harder to kill. So, uh, the philosopher John Hick uh, is, is kind of innovative in this way. He wrote this book, uh, Interpretation of Religion: Human Responses to the Transcendent. It's kind of a Kantian argument for uh, pluralism. Uh, it's like, how can you explain why religions should be thought of as pluralistic as opposed to just uh, kind of uh, fighting each other to the end? Hermeneutical non-literalism, uh, something that's kind of present in religions. So if you, it's harder to justify violence through citing something literally if, you, if, if it's kind of taboo to become a literalist. And a lot of peaceful religious traditions have kind of reinvented this uh, social practice as, as more prominent. So historical contextualization and uh, allegorical and philosophical readings, you know, Philo of Alexandria, origin. these are not um, 21st century Unitarians. These are, you know, these are the people in the core of uh, religious traditions and could be cultivated. Um, and actually today, uh, this is just a, a graph of how many people are literalists versus uh, um, allegorically oriented. This is Christians in America. You only have about 30% of people who are literalists. Um, so it's not even that prominent today. It's just a vocal minority. The, the sixth thing is if you sanctify disputation and striving for knowledge, which is really, a, it is a part of a lot of religious traditions, if people think of reasoning together and being more cooperative, uh, it really kind of sub, thro throws a little monkey wrench into that uh, violence um, mechanism. So Mohammed says, seek knowledge even if it's in China, for the seeking of knowledge is incumbent upon every Muslim. And you know, this, this verse inspires calligraphy, and these are things that should be cultivated. Um, here's an example. I think the Jewish tradition has done it uh, superbly well. Uh, the writer Leon Wiesel, the philosopher Leon Wieseltour writes, in the Jewish tradition, disagreement is not only real, it is also ideal. At least in the unredeemed world, which is the only world we know, in its millennia of disputations, even mistaken opinions are not without minority, uh, are not without legitimacy. Minority opinions are not obsolete opinions. They are preserved alongside majority opinions because their reasoning may one day become useful again. Arguments that are adjudicated practically remain alive theoretically. Indeed, both sides of a particular argument may be the words of the living God. The establishment of the law does not dissolve the legal discussion. The argument survives the decision, which is made among elders according to the majority rule so that the community may function, but the argument was never itself purely functional. It was instead intrinsically valuable. Since the end of prophecy and divination, ideas and practices must be validated by principles and by reasoning from principles. 
Learning to live with disagreement, moreover, is a way of learning to live with each other. So that basic spirit that's kind of blossomed in Judaism is something to cultivate. Uh, Non-establishment in government. Um, you know, if, if religious conflict is clearly easier to start and harder to end when it's theocratically oriented. So avoiding the establishment of a state or an atheist state, kind of each of them being a form of religion, but uh, also avoid extreme privatization of religion because you know, from the civil rights movement to today, we see that uh, religious actors um, uh, act for the good from their religions as well as from, um, for violence. Liberty of conscience. Um, you know, conscience allows one to dissent from violent exhortations. And if one doesn't know that conscience is a core feature of religious traditions, it's harder. Um, here's the uh, Islamic jurist Abdullahi al-Naim writing about Sharia in the modern world. Enforcing Sharia through coercive power of the state negates its religious nature because Muslims would be observing the law of the state and not freely performing their religious obligations as Muslims. So, you know, that's, that's a really important voice. So, in summary, um, I've, I've shown you some concrete empirical results that can help you in an acute crisis of negotiation as well as some uh, preventative measures as theologians. These are the eight that I mentioned. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to both of you. We promised a fascinating and wide-ranging conversation, and I think they really delivered. Um, as is our practice, we're now going to have, hopefully, a robust discussion, and we're going to start with questions from the students in the course that is associated with this colloquium speaker series, which Liz and I uh, facilitate together. So. Uh, we, we have students who are designated leads for each of these events, and now's the time for, uh, for them to pose a couple questions to our speakers. I might have a question or two uh, along the way as well, but uh, at, we're going to then open up to uh, the whole group, and, and everyone will have a chance to ask our speakers questions. Thanks. Hello. Thanks. Okay, so my name is Randy. I'm in the RPP working group. I'm a first year MTS here at Divinity School. Um, first, thanks very much to both of you for coming tonight. Now, um, the questions for both of you, if either one wants to answer, but it was from a reading that um, Professor Hawk uh, gave us from The Devoted Actor by Scott Atron. So this is a question, I think that's kind of the low hanging fruit um, in its obviousness of what gives religion a bad name. Um, what we see in the newspapers and in the media, and that's ISIS. So you had this, um, Atron had this line about that ISIS prisoners of war um, claim that Islam is their life, yet they know little about the Quran or Islamic history. So if that's true, then how can we understand the role religion actually plays in their violent philosophy? Or how do we address the way religion is motivating them if they really don't know much about religion. You should go first. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I guess uh, I, I would say the, it's the effect you're describing is not specific to ISIS in the sense that um, most people uh, who say religion has a deep and important part of their life um, probably don't come to that conclusion from getting a PhD in religious studies. Um, so there's always this bifurcation between intellectual knowledge and the social and emotional and 
moral aspects of religion that probably input into that attribution of it being meaningful, uh, first of all. But second of all, you know, if you ask people, you know, there's a Pew study recently, um, if you ask people about basic knowledge about their religions, they often don't have it at baseline, even when they're really in the, in the, in the religions and committed. And in fact, I think in that study, the, the agnostics or atheists knew more about the Bible than the, you know, the religious people. So what it means is that like, um, we can't make the attribution from knowledge to practice. And um, you know, that's kind of something outside of ISIS too. And that kind of, that kind of suggests a lot of the uh, political and uh, economic and other factors. Yeah, I don't know. If sure. Um, so the way I think about this is that there's, whatever you want to call it is just whatever's in people's heads. So these guys have religious beliefs. They have beliefs about the afterlife. They have beliefs about supernatural agents. This is a set of religious beliefs. Um, you know, they have a set of ritual practices. You might want to say it's different than those of another group, but that just means you're seeing cultural evolution and cultural change over time. You're sort of posing the question as if there's this true stuff and then there's what these guys believe. But I think of it more as a distribution of beliefs and values that change over time. I, I guess to specify a question or push it a little further would be there's two ways people are taking this. One is that um, a lot of people feel comfortable saying, oh, actually, they're not Muslims. That's why they're doing this. Um, and then another way is saying, well, actually, there could be something violent within Islam, and maybe let's deal with that. And so that's what I'm kind of getting at. How um, you're right that there is some kind of religious beliefs there, and uh, you're right, Professor Hawk, that um, you don't have to have a PhD to be religious at the same time, but how to almost disengage religion from violent groups is what I'm asking. How do we address that? So we look at it as not a religious phenomenon, but something else, and then we can have the pro-social, positive religious aspects um, more mainstream in people's thinking about religion and conflict. Yeah, I would say um, you know, if, if millions of people self-identify with a group and, and are using theological language, it's hard to say that they're not thinking religiously at all. So um, to that extent, you know, um, it's hard to, to totally ignore all that. But um, you could think of it as a resource that people use uh, in certain contexts for violence when needed to, cert to kind of justify goals in the world. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's kind of... Keep yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I, just piggybacking on this, I sort of am also skeptical about uh, sort of efforts to abstract away religion always. I speak as a religious person who has an impulse that would like to do that, but it's, I think it's important that we stick with these questions and try to parse and tease out. One of the interesting things that's beginning to happen in this work is people are looking at how are people religious? Not just religious versus non-religious, but what are, the, what are the different ways people are religious? Um, how do they practice that? How do they live that? What is the content of their beliefs? And uh, instruments are being developed to, to parse these things out. And interesting things are beginning to be learned about differences in the way people are religious. So one of the risks, I think, in this work is to have uh, the, the big label religious and the big label non-religious. There's clearly more work to be done in parsing. Um, how do people live their religions? What, what is the content of their beliefs? And there's beginning evidence that this seems to matter. Yeah, that was one of the, I mean, that actually makes me uncomfortable, this notion of uh, religious pro-sociality, because it all depends on the details. And some religions are violent. 
I mean, some people have supernatural beliefs or rituals that lead to violence, and we have intergroup competition. Um, so you want to think about the specific details of specific religion, specific religious beliefs, specific practices, specific rituals. And all those things could also exist in a, in a secular guise, just like the secular prime in the study he showed. So uh, the mechanisms probably aren't always specific to religion. And so, uh, you know, like the government primes could uh, lead one to pro-sociality and uh, kind of there are probably other primes that lead to uh, secular violence. And so the mechanisms need to be articulated in, in detail context. Hi, my name is Vicki, and um, I'm a Master's of Divinity student here. My question is for Dr. Heinrich. Um, why is it that people who have experienced war, especially bombing, are more religious? Yeah, so great question, and that's something we've been writing about. Um, so the, the main idea that we're working with now is that when you receive a shock, so we think a similar thing might happen with like famines and droughts, uh, you get a spike in religiosity after these things. And it's because in order to survive these shocks, you need to stick tightly to your group norms. And the debate, where the debate's at now is whether the shock causes you to be more pro-social or whether the shock causes you to adhere more tightly to group norms. And the way to think about that is if you say your group has um, prejudice against gays or something like that. If you had a shock, you become both more pro-social and more prejudiced against whatever the, that group norm is. Where if it's just pro-sociality, it'll increase just the pro-sociality without messing with the sort of non-social uh, or other kinds of social norms. Um, we, don't, we don't know a good answer to that question. Right now, it's looking like it causes people to adhere more tightly to their norms. So it's, it's, piece of, it's a piece of evolved psychology that humans have acquired in order to survive these kinds of shocks like wars and famines and droughts and things like that. I would say a complementary mechanism would be um, uh, uh, awareness of mortality that comes from that. So if you ask children about their mortality, it's not really clear when do people start you know, actively thinking about mortality. We don't often find, uh, you know, even, I don't know how many people uh, work with teenagers or people you know, in their 20s, but oftentimes people don't confront those things uh, until later on in their lives. Uh, so I think that could be it. And also uh, what uh, I think the uh, anthropologist Harvey Whitehouse calls spontaneous exegetical reflection, which is a thing that happens after these kind of traumatic rituals. So the fact that you're spontaneously making um, an exegesis or a hermeneutical interpretation of your own life means you're thinking more existentially. And when you think more existentially, you're gonna gravitate to traditions that ask questions of meaning, purpose, value, uh, afterlife, so I think that could be a complimentary explanation. Can, can I uh, just ask a follow-up question on this? Um, I think in many ways, that for me, it's sort of the $64 question or whatever. The um, Professor Hawk was talking, you were talking at the end of your remarks about sort of the expanding circle and emphasizing those features of religion that, um, you know, that sort of expand social circles and extend pro-social behavior beyond groups. The, the Norris and Engelhart work on uh, a couple collaborators have, have shown that in environments of existential insecurity generally, not just wars, I think, they'd say that we find more of a certain kind of religious observance, you know, more, you know, to 
to, to use a sort of contested word, fundamentalist or strict adherence to religion. So in these environments of existential insecurity, um, what are your thoughts or further thoughts about in those environments in particular? How do we, uh, how, how do we break the vicious cycle if, you, if your research were to support the notion that there's a vicious cycle? By the way, your, your, uh, res your research consortium, I assume you know the symbol you've chosen is the Enzo in Zen. Right, yeah. yeah. The circle for, the, the idea of sort of all-encompassing uh, inclusion, yeah. Yeah, our, uh, our PI's a sinologist, and so he's, yeah. he really wanted that one. Yeah. Um, so it, the way to short circuit the cycle, yeah. So um, the only thought I've had on that is this, if the cycle leads to war, if you could somehow get the competition to be kind of a more benign competition, uh, where you're competing in some nonviolent way that wouldn't continue the cycle. Um, I mean, there's, I mentioned lots of ways that groups compete. I'm not sure how you channel it that way. But. Uh, yeah, I, no, I think that sounds. It's kind well, of. It's kind I've of. Mostly been focused on identifying vicious circles. Yeah, yeah, I just don't think we know the answer because it's uh, there's so little research on how this connects in to, to peacemaking. But uh, yeah, it sounds promising. As we've explored this year, there's a lot of interesting work being done at the intersection of religion and and uh, peace building and development, and you know, sort of removing those existential insecurity factors mm -hmm. is is. It's helpful. It's all interrelated, yeah. Right. Although, I mean, the Engelhart study, I mean, one way to interpret that is that as you get the construction of strong secular institutions, you mm. uh, create safety nets that were previously supplied by religion. You actually reduce the functionality of religion and create a secular decline. So in our, in one of the questions that comes up when our paper in which we laid all this out is, well, in the modern world, in parts of Europe, you have declining religion. And the case that uh, Norn Zion and Singaland and I make is that this is because the strong secular institutions have replaced uh, some of the primary functions of traditional religions. And you still get people being spiritual but not religious because it's, it's a different cultural evolutionary process. Uh, Julia? Dr. Huck, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me asking this one, but um, I'm just interested in, uh, in terms of the experiments that you were doing. Um, your view on the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump, do you think they were voting from their self perspective or from a God perspective? No. Well, well uh, yeah. I didn't expect this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking of a punchline, but I'll, I'll hold it. Um, or another perspective, indeed. Uh, I, I think, um, yeah, they were probably, probably, there's other evidence that when people think about God, they also, um, that contravenes this work, that they, um, they project their views about what God is like. Just like when you um, have a pet or have a uh, baby, uh, oftentimes if you ask people, what's that, what, what's Fido's favorite uh, sports team or their, you know, what's, what's uh, little Johnny's favorite God, you know, they're always going to be what, what's in your mind. In the same way, that would, that would go against the work that shows that thinking from God's perspective makes you uh, uh, more open to outsiders. In this other line of research by Nick Epley, uh, thinking from God's perspective is just another version of by being biased. So I, I'm not sure which way it goes with the evangelicals in, in terms of Trump, but um, 
the evangelicals tend to be more um, prejudiced outsiders compared to mainline Christians, and so uh, to the extent that Trump is uh, kind of stirring up uh, xenophobia, it would suggest they would want to go with it. I mean, they do seem potentially the perfect example for using the God perspective and saying, actually, what would God think? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. It's that kind of situation. Absolutely. Pinarzik has done work on uh, reminders of compassionate values within uh, one's religion among uh, very conservative Muslims in Iran and very conservative Christians in the U.S. and found that uh, they became... Uh, much more tolerant of, of the other when reminded of the compassionate values in their own tradition. I'm Sarah, I'm in the School of Education. Um, I really like that slide about um, differences being accepted into religion, um, like within the uh, Jewish tradition. And part of that actually resonated also with my understanding of a lot of the jurisdiction within um, Islamic um, tradition as well. And this is kind of related to the question on ISIS. What, and related to the in-groups and the out-groups, what happens if, um, if in-groups and out-groups exist within the same religious tradition? Who has the right to claim that tradition and speak for it? And is it, the religious tradition creating the in-groups or the out-groups? Or is it uh, the in-groups and out-groups wielding the power of religion or whatever what parts of it to emphasize that in-group, out-group relationship? Because um, I don't think ISIS is the first example or the last, ex hopefully last, but of, uh, of that sort of um, offensive. Yeah, sure. Well, so uh, from my perspective, it's just, you know, uh, groups split apart, different groups get, different subgroups of a larger population end up with different beliefs. They're able, to the degree to which they're able to become a coherent group, they can expand at the expense of other groups. So it's just cultural evolution. The, the question of who has the right is a normative question. And none of my stuff uh, has, a, has, a, has a good answer to that question. Uh, yeah, so, you, you know, ISIS is divided in the sense that it's uh, trying to connect with Muslims all over the world, but also particularly devoted to its own uh, narrower group uh, in, in the Levant, or I'm sorry, in Syria and Lebanon. So, um, uh, you know, you could think of them as two uh, subgroups competing for power, and uh, whether they have the right to, um, I think, you know, there are, there are probably lots of legal maxims and traditions um, within Islamic jurisprudence that would support your view. Uh, sir? Um, I'm a re retired quantitative scientist who's led a completely secular life and have become a Quaker. And I've discovered that what we have is conflict in the Quaker community, but a repertoire of thoughts, actions, and and, and responses to conflict, which are very help, <clears throat> very helpful, and that there are a subgroup of us who are non-theist religious Quakers. So all of this, this is a complex mix. It's been a wonderful evening, by the way. It's the first time one of these that came across my computer screen that I came to. 
I think I'd like to come back, but thank you both very, very much. Thank you very much. Let's, let's go over here and then here. Uh, up, up in the back. Uh, hey there, I'm Phil. I'm a third year MDiv uh, here at HDS. Um, I'm just, I just wanted to pick up on the point about uh, talking about trauma and war leading to uh, more conviction around religious beliefs. You mentioned kind of latching onto beliefs maybe as a coping mechanism um, to, to kind of process or get through that trauma. I'm just wondering, um, and maybe you can both speak to this, but uh, the notion of traumatic experience, um, I, I would imagine in some cases, we could maybe frame it as softening and opening people up rather than hardening and closing them off. And perhaps I mean that more interpersonally, um, but it could also be one's relation to life. It could be, I think there are a lot of ways to take that, but if any of the research you've come across or participated in speaks to that notion of um, perhaps just in a very general sense, difficult life experiences actually softening people in a way that they can more easily sympathize or empathize with others and they, they loosen those beliefs that would actually keep them sort of bracing against others who are different from them or life itself in this sort of defensive posture. So in, in our work, what we find is when people experience war, it causes them to, it increases their religious beliefs, but it also causes them to engage in more social groups. So they have a particularly strong tendency to start going to religious rituals. We get this amongst both Muslims and Christians. Those are the two we have. Um, but they also join more of other kinds of social groups. So you know, we don't have the Lions Club, but you know, other kinds of community organizations. So it makes people more social, and that could have the kind of downstream effects maybe you're thinking of. Yeah, and also uh, thinking more like a psychiatrist here, um, you know, there's a whole literature on post-traumatic growth, which is kind of the, uh, a reaction to the, uh, the overly negative view uh, in psychology from Freud and others that uh, the goal of uh, social sciences is to transform a person from hysterical misery to everyday unhappiness. Uh, <laughs> so a reaction to that is a kind of positive psychology. And post-traumatic growth suggests that people do uh, become more pro-social, but also by being more aware of their mortality, uh, uh, increase in humility and um, uh, kind of that kind of exegetical reflection that helps them think of their lives as a whole, as opposed to just in time slices, which um, helps people think of their life as limited in time, as opposed to like a teenager who's gonna live forever. And so that kind of seems to push people towards more pro-socially oriented outcomes as well. And um, there's a lot of personality change, post-trauma too. Uh, more conscientiousness, uh, more agreeableness, um, Sometimes, I don't think neuroticism changes one way or the other, but there's a lot of similar pro-social growth. Here, here in the middle. Um, thank you for your talks. Um, I just came back from living in Africa, uh, and I wanted to have your take on this. Um, and it's uh, uh, traditional healers and witchcraft, and how, for example, I'll give you an example. Example: My friend Bonnie has uh, a housemaid 
whose daughter was sacrificed because um, the traditional healers said that her baby that, that was um, growing inside of her would be born um, with some sort of malformation unless her daughter was sacrificed. So, and this is two years ago. So I'm, as for global health, you're in global health, how do you change these ideas of witchcraft? How do you tell somebody to put an antiseptic on the umbilicus of a newborn baby instead of letting it die? How, how do these things coexist? Because for me, I, I'm blown away by it. Well, I'm, I can, I don't think I can have, I don't have very many good ideas, but I can put it in context, which is that these kind of witchcraft beliefs are incredibly widespread. And from the anthropological perspective, what I've always found striking, we have a few projects going on witchcraft, is that you can go to New Guinea, South America, and Africa, and you see very similar beliefs. Um, often this has to do with envy, and it's the idea that an emotion can have a kind of causal force in the world. So if someone envies you, this can either consciously or unconsciously then cause people to get sick or uh, other kinds of things. And it's, it's uh, incredibly difficult to um, get people to change, change, their, change their minds on this. I would say, uh, you know, I, I, I experienced this myself working in Mali, in Mali uh, when I was younger. But uh, one way that the, the community health workers who are from NGOs that are more trained in, in Western biomedicine, what they do suggest is try to incorporate the belief uh, that the person has uh, in light of what you think is going to be most efficacious so for example, you might frame the antibiotic in terms of another sacred value they hold that makes sense in their, in their explanatory model of whether it is witchcraft or uh, whatever. Um, there's always a way to kind of out-theologianize them in their own worldview. Sir? What I hear people asking you or trying to ask um, is about the misuse of religion trying to uh, ask the right question about it, and uh, trying to dovetail on our, my friend over here. Uh, what I want to ask you about is the role of certainty in religion. I'm a Christian preacher, and, and I know that certainty can be extremely helpful to human beings in many circumstances. And ambiguity, which may strike me as more honest, more truthful, is often not helpful to people. And I see this replicated in small and large ways in religion all over the place. And I wonder if you have a helpful rejoinder to what I'm thinking about. Well, uh, in your description, it reminded me of a, of a famous priming study in which they reminded people of death. And the people who were most shaken up by the reminder of death were not the atheists and not the religious people, but the, the people who weren't sure. Because um, the religious people, they, you know, they got a story, and the atheists, they got a story, and it was the people who weren't sure that were both shaken up and had the most amount of stress induced by being reminded of death. Yeah, and so uh, uncertainty resolution, so there's the, there's the philosophical question of what kinds of certainty are available to us as humans, whether it's scientific or other philosophical knowledge, logical knowledge. Um, but outside of that, most people don't go around calibrating their levels of certainty to the kind of uh, knowledge that you know, academics would think about. But to that extent, 
religion uh, does meet those needs, and so do secular institutions. So you can decrease uncertainty through uh, joining a social group, through uh, rituals, collective rituals decrease uncertainty. Um, and so I, I see certainty as a core feature of human life, um, uncertainty, uncertainty, the need for certainty, um, that can be, can be resolved through uh, interpersonal action, social action, ritual, or belief. One, one other uh, qu quick follow-up on that, which is that there's an interesting line of research in social psychology in which they look at these simple rituals that people do, like if you're a baseball player, you know, you always wear your underwear backwards on game day, or you put your head on backwards, or you do some kind of funny thing. And this actually increases people's confidence and they perform better when they do these simple rituals before they perform in whatever way they have to. So and uh, in one study, I think of the uh, um, Israeli-Palestinian war, right before the Intifada, uh, people were spontaneously doing certain um, counting rituals with, um, I think, rosaries, if I, if I remember correctly, that, that decreased their uncertainty about the outcome of the war. Over here. Good evening, my name is Andrew Kopach. Thank you for your time. Uh, I wanna speak to the speeding bus barreling down on children. It's not directed so much at the panel, but us all. Um, uh, present a, another scenario. Um, and I'm gonna place myself on the bridge with the large man. Um, and it's a quick decision. Uh, but I think there's time to discuss it with the large man. Hey, I'm about to make a decision to either walk away from the bridge and go about my day or to throw you off and save the five children. That's one scenario. The other is how are we, because now we make a larger distraction for the driver, how are we going to throw ourselves together off the bridge and stop that bus? And say those five children, or not even think about the large man because there is no time and throw myself off the bridge and the five children are safe. So um, I have no, I don't, I don't want an answer. Um, I just want us to think about it because that's who I am. I would have thrown myself off the bridge um, and let's hope I never have to, but so many of us are in our devices and wouldn't even notice the children or the man or the bus. So um, please consider that there are more scenarios than those two presented. Thank you. Can, can I just say that's, that's so interesting. I mean, there, uh, the, these, the trolley hypothetical is replicated. It, it's, a, it's famous in social science and uh, and there are many, many permutations on that scenario that change facts and factors in it. But I've actually never seen that example. Yeah, have you? Right. <laughs> well, I know there, there. I don't, I don't know. There, I forget the results, but they have versions of it where um, you push the guy, you yourself. There is no guy, and you decide to jump. And other permutations. I don't remember the outcomes though. Yeah. Altru it's, altru it's called, um, you know, um, altruistic. Parochialism, right? Isn't it? I don't know. Yeah. Choice. Yeah. Choice. More questions? Uh, sure. Yeah. 
Robin Rubin from the Kennedy School. Um, just two questions. One of them is, in terms of religious prosociality, what do you think might be the evidence for inclusive fitness consequences, if any, for those? And then secondly, I mean, you've, you've given Dr. Hawk some really good actionable advice in terms of how do we evoke out-group cooperation with each other. I'm just wondering what you both might think in terms of what are the implications of this research for the design and delivery of, for example, interfaith peace-building programs. Can we make this more actionable from a foreign policy and programmatic perspective? Can we integrate these findings into how we deliver activities across differing faiths or different, differing cultures? Sure. I'll go into the first with yeah. the inclusive fitness one. So uh, the idea in, in that I develop in The Secret of Our Success and that kind of underlies all this is that uh, natural selection is shaping uh, the cultural learning machinery, the stuff in our heads that allow us to acquire all this information. And that th that's so valuable and so useful that we need to acquire all this stuff that there's going to be a certain amount of stuff that's not, mal that can be maladaptive. And there's tons of maladaptive stuff we learn all the time. But if you decided to stop learning, and, and then you couldn't acquire all the other stuff that you need. So we're kind of, you know, it's this um, particular evolutionary track. and so. Uh, doesn't, it's probably not fitness maximizing in any sense. It doesn't have to be. Sometimes it might be, but it's not a general feature. Um, yeah, and so the, the, the distinctive usefulness of cultural knowledge in natural selection and cultural evolution, um, interfaith peace building could be a version of that if groups would learn from other groups about what um, were the kind of crucial apps <laughs> that kind of led to one group uh, populating itself with more, with less violence, for example. Now, if a group became less violent, would that also make it less competitive? I don't, I mean, in intergroup conflict, that would be a trade-off. So um, that's why, like, not a lot of states are pacifist states, but you could have, you could think of, like, an optimality function where you have a certain amount of peace that's consistent with everyone else being, ha having a certain amount of peace. Maybe, like, mutually assured destruction with nuclear wars. No one, no one uses them, but, you know, game theoretically, you know, there could be an optimum that's less violent or a Nash equilibrium or something, you know? Mm -hmm. For some of these policy implications and recommendations that you mentioned, for example, encouraging surgeons to uh, think of it from God's perspective, um, has that ever been tested in, in these particular programs or interfaith uh, policies that have been espoused by governments or by civil society organizations or anything like that? And do you think that should be tested if it hasn't been done so? Um, I don't know of any tests, because the evidence I cited was from 2016, just the basic finding. And uh, to the extent that it would be tested, it would have to be done very carefully, because if you, from the evidence I presented, it suggests that if you present God's perspective with all the, uh, entrap you know, the trappings of the cultural um, institutions and leaders, it would actually reverse the effect, because the, the altruistic effect of thinking from God's perspective is getting outside of yourself, getting outside of your attachments. And so... How it would done, how it would be done, would be really important. So some other hands up. Others with questions?
so I, I just want to thank our speakers again, and I want to say uh, your work is really consequential. Um, and religion obviously is central to social life for lots of people around the planet, and we really need to understand uh, in increasingly granular ways in, uh, from diverse perspectives, from unvarnished perspectives, um, the ways in which religion, cooperation, and conflict relate. Um, one, of the, one of the questions we always get in the RPP uh, initiative and what it's all about, really, is, is what, are, what are the ways in which religious people and religious communities can, uh, can contribute uh, to promotion of human flourishing and, and cooperation in our and, and our premise is that we do and always have, and yet we see these many pressing entanglements of religion with, uh, with conflict and whatnot around the globe, and we get many questions like, like we've had today, you know, so what does one do about that? And I think this research is really useful and really potentially helpful in, in creating pragmatic answers to those sorts of questions. Um, so thank you. All right, and uh, I have to detain you for one minute more with uh, a few announcements. Um, please join us for our next RPP colloquium on March 23rd, which will focus on Islam, tradition, and resources for nonviolent conflict transformation. Uh, we'll be sending out details soon, so if you haven't joined our RPP mailing list yet, please do go on our website and sign up so you can receive an announcement about this and others, uh, other announcements. Uh, as always, if you hear about events on religions and the practice of peace at Harvard or in the local area, please forward RPP the links to the online info so that we can post it on our website in our upcoming events page, publicize these as well. Um, after this, please join us in the uh, in the lobby of Andover Hall here for a reception with tea and refreshments. It's a great opportunity to continue the conversation. And uh, many thanks for being here and have a good night.